I promised myself two things before I actually um, could leave the neurologist appointment. When I walked in the door, I said, look, before I put the key in the car, I've got to promise myself I can answer two questions. And one of those was, um, can I accept I've got Parkinson's? And that was pretty easy for me. I said, yep, I can accept it. Don't like it. Don't doesn't mean I'm going to give up, um, but I can accept it. And then and the next one was, what are we going to do about it? Mm-hmm. So for myself, it was really crystal clear it was to find a cure. And next time, I'm going to probably wish for something a little bit simpler. <laughs> uh, but that was uh, the two things that I promised myself I had to decide before I could actually put the key in the car and we can move on. Silver Adventures is a content and technology company dedicated to improving the lives of older adults through immersive virtual reality experiences. And this podcast is our opportunity to hear from industry experts, thought leaders, and passionate individuals to share with you their knowledge, expertise, and experiences. Welcome to the Aged Care Enrichment Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. I hope you're having a wonderful day wherever you are. If you're in lockdown or one of those lucky individuals out enjoying the wider world, I'm your host, Ash Deneef, and we've got a two-part episode for you today. We're focusing on a topic we haven't talked about at all on the podcast, Parkinson's disease. And to help us explore the experience of people living with Parkinson's, we have the CEO of the Shake It Up Foundation, Clyde Campbell, and in the second half of the show, immersive storyteller and friend of the show, Wesley Delavola. First up is Clyde, and he shares his story of how his diagnosis propelled him into the field of Parkinson's research, and how the Shake It Up Foundation is pairing Australian researchers with the Michael J. Fox Foundation in the US to help slow, stop, and cure Parkinson's. Hey, if you're liking what you hear, then we'd love to hear from you. And if you want to give me a nice, warm, fuzzy feeling, you could leave a review on whichever platform you're listening to this on. I read them all, and they make me feel great. Well, that is enough of my voice for now. You'll hear plenty more of me as we go along. So for now, we hope you enjoy this interview with Clyde Campbell. Great, Clyde. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. You're welcome. It's great to have you here. And uh, we'd really love to talk about Parkinson's disease and your experience with that. But maybe we can wind it back a little bit to tell us your story and your journey with Parkinson's. Yeah, my journey started around 12 years ago now. Um, I got up to speak as CEO for our robotics company that we own and uh, the notes in my hand started to shake. Really unusual for myself. Half my head's going, tough it up, you must be nervous. And the other half the head's going, what the hell's happening here? Mm. So I walked the room and I just couldn't get myself comfortable. Um, The notes continued to shake. No one else I thought saw it at the time, but um, it was just something out of the blue. So I got all the way through the day. Uh, and spoke to my wife at the end of the day and said, look, if anything happens, this is what I've had symptoms of today. So that meant Monday morning was off to the doctor Mm. and uh, really just to try and understand a bit more about what the symptoms were because I I didn't know anything about Parkinson's as such at that time. Yeah, wow. So you you jumped on it pretty quick then. Yeah, I wanted to be able to understand what the the issue was um, because it's something that was out of the ordinary for myself. Um, And my diagnosis was quite unusual. It was very quick. But that Monday morning, went to see the doc and uh, he uh, said, oh, look, Clyde, I'm going to have to refer you to a a neurologist. And I said, look, that just hit me with what what you think the problem is. And he said, look, you you look like you've got young onset Parkinson's, uh, which uh, was a hell of a shock to myself. And then we had to work through what the symptoms and what the progression would be from there. 
Wow. Okay. So after you see the neurologist, you get a diagnosis. And what was the period like immediately afterwards and the adjustment to it? Oh, look, for myself, it was a hell of a shock um, to be able to be diagnosed. The neurologist said at the time, he said, look, the good news is you've got Parkinson's because the other diseases were far more life-threatening and far more limitating than Parkinson's. Mm. Not, still not a fun disease to have by any means, but it was the best of a bad bunch. Yeah, wow. So you've received the diagnosis and you're overcoming the shock. What, what were the initial kind of changes that you started to make in, in your life? I promised myself two things before I actually um, could leave the neurologist appointment. When I walked in the door, I said, look, before I put the key in the car, I've got to promise myself I can answer two questions. And one of those was, um, can I accept I've got Parkinson's? And that was pretty easy for me. I said, yep, I can accept it. Don't like it. Don't, doesn't mean I'm going to give up, um, but I can accept it. Because acceptance for myself is the basis of all happiness. You need to understand where you're at to be able to work, work on where you want to be. And then and the next one was, what are we going to do about it? Mm-hmm. So for myself, it was really crystal clear it was to find a cure. And next time, I'm going to probably wish for something a little bit simpler. <laughs> uh, but that was uh, the two things that I promised myself I had to decide before I could actually put the key in the car and we could move on. Yeah, wow. So that kind of spearheaded you and pushed you along into your work with Shake It Up. Can you talk about the the founding of that organisation? Yeah, that really pushed us into what, if we're going to find a cure, we had to find people that could do the research. Um, I'm a great believer in Australians have got huge capability. So I had a look around Australia and I found some fantastic researchers all doing different research in Parkinson's. Um, In my humble opinion, all underfunded. But if we did fund them at a higher level, how do we make sure it was strategic and we weren't just doing it um, to make ourselves feel good and not make a difference in the years to come? So I learned a lot about what research we had operating around Australia. Then uh, trying to group that together and say, how do we strategically go after it? Uh, I was actually working in the United States at the time on a project in our robotics business. And I was in the Nevada desert. We were doing a solar job over there in robotics. Mm. Uh, And I teed up a meeting at the Fox Foundation in New York City. I went over to New York City, uh, sat down with them for two hours and just come away going, they're the guys that can help us. Just there were no airs and graces. They're just completely focused on how to slow, stop and cure Parkinson's. And that was the start of the, the Shake It Up Foundation. What we were looking for there with Michael J. Fox is how do we actually bring his process over to Australia? But being such a small part of uh, the world in you know, gross domestic product, we, we need to look at what can we do not to slow the, the Fox Foundation down. Uh, it took us 12 months. The CEO uh, said, look, Clyde, you convinced me that we should work closer together, but you've got to convince the board because what you're asking we've never done before. So uh, my wife and myself went over to New York City and uh, presented to the Michael J. Fox Foundation board, got up and spoke in regards to what we were wanting to do, how we're going to do it. And um, Michael stood up after our presentation and said, Clyde, I can see you've got a period of motive. Uh, You've got my vote. Mm. Uh, So that I knew I had the other 40 votes in the room. (laughs) That's a good start. He might be the linchpin there. Yeah, look, he's a fantastic guy. Um, the foundation is such a large organisation that you know, Michael plays a part in, but um, it's such a big operation now that uh, it's, a, you know, it's the biggest funder of private research in Parkinson's anywhere in the world. And did you find that you said that Australia had a certain amount of innovative research? Did you find that you were able to bring Australian research into the fold for the Fox Foundation there? 
Yeah, what we found initially is the researchers didn't think um, Michael J. Fox would fund very much in Australia. Mm. And to, to that point, they hadn't funded a, a lot of things. Um, so what we needed to do is get our researchers to be able to apply and, and also communicate better with the Fox Foundation to ensure that we got better acceptance in their grant process. That, that's 12 years ago now. Since then, we've had over 50 projects up and running in Australia, 13 different research institutes. So significant engagement across Australia. And Fox have funded half of that with ourselves. So, yeah, it's been over $10 million worth of funds going into that. Fantastic. And when you're talking about stopping the disease or curing the disease, what does that exactly look like? Is that the end of symptoms? Is it the end of degeneration? What is that? Yeah, so we were after the holy grail of curing the disease, but what does that mean? So Parkinson's, when it's when you normally see the symptoms of rigidity or tremor come on, you've lost about 70% of the dopamine-producing cells in the substantia nigra in the back of the brain. Mm-hmm. But if we can find that earlier than that, say if you've lost 20, 30, 40% of the actual dopamine-producing cells, and we understand that person's got Parkinson's and we slow it down, as long as we don't get below the 70% degradation, not, people aren't going to even have the symptoms of Parkinson's. Mm. So if we can slow the disease, find it early and slow it down, we don't need to stop, to cure it because we already can slow it down enough not to have any symptoms occur. Uh, so that's the early days part. But if people have already got the symptoms and they've lost 70% of their dopamine-producing cells, how do we stop the actual continuous death of those cells it is critical to people who have been diagnosed with Parkinson's because they've already got that cell death. So we've got other drugs that are working on how to be able to stop the disease progressing. And then how do we be able to improve the actual cells that are there? Can we regrow the cells or can we stimulate the cells that are there to be able to produce more dopamine to do uh, what we want it to do and, and allow people, people to live a normal life? Wow, okay. So what are the sort of needs for people with different stages of Parkinson's that might be different for people without? Look, it's such a diverse disease. Um, normally, I suppose, in the, the symptoms people see outwardly are normally the tremor or rigidity. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we work on the rigidity component first, if people are getting freezing incidences where, where they can't get their feet to actually move, mm-hmm. uh, so they're coming up to a doorway or up to a pedestrian crossing, and their feet just freeze. They can't get them to move. So we're working with the Fox Foundation and also Neuro Research in Sydney that actually have a vibration uh, device that actually vibrates on the side of the person's leg with vibrating socks, uh, and it actually gets the, the rhythm back in so the person can actually get back into a beat. So, and then the sensors and the accelerometers and so on in the actual socks can actually tell when people are walking, running, or freezing. So that goes back to the iPhone, which is pretty easily to connect back to. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've got connectivity to the rest of the world. So those areas of research we've got practically happening in in Australia right as we speak today. So as they, for example, they approach a traffic light, a pedestrian crossing, sorry, and they stop, then the socks will detect that they've stopped and they've frozen? Or how does it detect the the locking? Uh, You can do it proactively Mm -hmm. where we would actually leave the actual vibration on so that it stops them being freezing uh, effectively so that you've got these little vibrating motors which are only about as big as a pencil. So they're quite small. Just vibrate next to the actual ankle. So you turn them on or off uh, from your iPhone. So the idea is to be able to proactively do it so that uh, you actually turn those on when you're out walking around so that you can not freeze. 
Um, but yeah, in future time, can we actually sense that the person has gone from a, uh, a walking state to a, a, a frozen state and then turn it on automatically? Mm. Right. And have you worn these socks before? What does that feel like? I have. I've been using them to a part of the actual early days trials. Yeah, I'm very happy to be able to assist in any way and being able to work with uh, our researchers. So, yeah, it's an interesting feeling. Mm-hmm. I don't get freezing of gait. I've got more of a tremor-dominant Parkinson's. Okay. So the freezing of gait doesn't affect myself uh, in that area. Um, but other people that I've seen working with our sci- scientists and working with the, the researchers have had some fantastic results using them. Awesome. And another area I can imagine that people living with Parkinson's might need a bit of extra support could be their emotional journey. And I know you were quite quick to accept that you had Parkinson's, whether you liked it or not, but maybe helping people approach it in a positive mindset. How how can people do that, do you think? Uh, Everyone deals with their Parkinson's in a different way. Uh, For myself, I found it very easy to be able to say, look, let's go and share it with everyone and tell people what I have, Mm -hmm. Uh, where most people don't want anyone else, else to know they've got Parkinson's. I just found it easier to be able to be out there and just say, look, this is what it is. This is how I'm trying to deal with it. But I can fully understand a lot of other people just want the privacy. They want to be able to work on the, their symptoms and can they actually live a normal life without people knowing that they've got Parkinson's. Hmm. But, yeah, the emotional support is very, very important. You know, what we want people to be able to do is make sure they can get out and about because the, the first thing people with Parkinson's symptoms quite often do is don't go out because they're embarrassed that people may see them tremoring or frozen. Right. And that becomes then even worse because you're then more anxious next time you go out mm-hmm. um, because you're not as experienced being able to interact in public places. So it's one of those self-fulfilling prophecies, I suppose, uh, that you ne- just need to try and get yourself out and about. Exercise I've found being critically important to everyone with Parkinson's. How to be able to get out and, and exercise. Uh, I exercise for an hour every morning before I do anything. Raise your heart rate, whether it be running, paddling, biking, swimming, whatever you can do. And everyone can do it obviously at different levels depending on what their age and what their actual um, condition with Parkinson's is matured to. Great. So you could see that maybe some people might need a little extra support getting out there early in the morning like you are or or even just someone to go with them might be a, a nice help. Most definitely someone to go with them or someone to support them and also just someone to talk to. Uh, I'm very fortunate. I've got a very strong family group around me. Uh, we've got you know, three kids, fantastic wife, um, great extended family, mm. but that doesn't happen for everyone. So it's important for people not to get isolated with Parkinson's as well and ensure they can still be part of a community. Mm. I'm wondering if you have um, any message for healthcare workers who might be helping people living with Parkinson's. Probably the first one would be thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah there's, it's not an easy task to be able to be a carer. Um, anyone that's got an illness, especially someone that's got a neurodebilitating illness like, such as Parkinson's. Um, thank you for the opportunity to be able to increase per- people's opportunity to get out and live a normal life. And just how do they work with the, the Parkinson's patient? Because everyone's going to have a different disease trajectory mm. uh, as to how it continues to uh, worsen in Parkinson's. And how do you, do you get around some of those areas that uh, you may not have been able to do in the past? You know, some people I've found that have struggled most with Parkinson's are the people that are highly achieving athletes or business community people because they're 
put their performance level up to such a high standard and they expect to hit it. Mm-hmm. No matter what we're doing, uh, you, you, maybe, maybe you can't do things in your 50s that you could do in your 20s. Uh, on the sporting field, mm-hmm. whether that's got anything to do with Parkinson's is another thing altogether. But Parkinson's takes away some of those areas that people may have been very proficient at in the past. So it sounds like there might be something of a grieving process for that loss there. It is. It's a grieving and acceptance process to be able to get through. And how do you be able to look at what is on the other side? That you know, Michael J. Fox is just such a, a positive guy in regards to that. What has Parkinson's given him back in his life mm. that he wouldn't have had? if he didn't have Parkinson's. And Michael said he's very fortunate to have Parkinson's. Mm. I wouldn't go quite that far. Um, (laughs) But, uh, yeah, it is what it is, and we just need to work on how we actually live with it and make sure we make the best of every day. Mm. Can you maybe share some things that you've gained out of your journey with Parkinson's? Oh, look, we've gained a lot with our kids, um, how they understand people, um, how they deal with different problems, uh, how they make sure that they... Uh, can understand illness and how to be able to work with that. You know, when we first told our kids um, I had Parkinson's, um, we sat down and um, had a normal family chat and um, I said, do you have any questions? And Joshy, who was only probably eight at the time, uh, our son, said, oh, Daddy, are you okay? And I said, mate, I'm fine. I'll definitely let you know if I'm not. Mm. Uh, Zoe, who you could see was just mulling it over and thinking a hell of a lot about it, said, no, she didn't have any questions. And Phoebe, who was only you know three at the time, uh, said, no, no, I don't have any issues at all. But what we found is that you know, two weeks later, Zoe came up to me and uh, said, Daddy, you're going to die. Uh, and her thought with people that had a disease that they're going to pass away. Mm. And so that was really a, a distracting part for herself that we had to put an understanding of what Parkinson's was and how it actually affected people so we could move on and live a normal life. Yeah. Hey, that's fantastic. Clyde, where can people find out more about Shake It Up and the work that you're doing there? Uh, the best way to find out about ourselves is our website at shakeitup.org.au. There's plenty of areas there that can get newsletters on a monthly basis That'll tell people what we are actually doing in the community and what we're doing research-wise. So, yeah, shakeitup.org.au is the best way to get hold of us. Perfect. And is there anything else you wanted to touch on or let listeners know about before we leave it there for today? There's nothing specific, I suppose, more just in regards to ensuring people can see there is a positive future for people with Parkinson's. You know, we are working on ways to slow, stop and cure the disease, but we need to get out there and ensure we put in our best effort every day ourselves, um, work on your exercise, work on your mental health and ensure you keep have a positive focus towards your future. Fantastic. Clyde, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I thank you and for your listeners' time. It's really appreciated. A big thanks to Clyde Campbell from the Shake It Up Foundation for chatting with us. Up next, we've got Wesley Delavola joining us from Meridian Treehouse in the US. Wesley has an extensive career working in the immersive storytelling space, particularly through our favourite medium, virtual reality. As you'll hear in the interview, Wesley's focus changed after his diagnosis with young onset Parkinson's, and he's passionate about building transformative virtual experiences for people with neurodiversity and physical limitations. And that interview is coming right up after this quick break. You're listening to the Age Care Enrichment Podcast, brought to you by Silver Adventures. And we want to thank all of our listeners and subscribers, especially those people who've shared this podcast with a friend or colleague. 
Because of you, we've just entered the top 50 mental health podcasts on Apple Podcasts, and we're one of the fastest growing health podcasts in Australia. We're looking to take the Aged Care Enrichment Podcast to the next level by partnering with great organisations to showcase their message with our rapidly growing audience of aged care executives and people working within the industry. If you'd like to discuss what an advertising opportunity with our podcast can mean for your business, send us an email. We're at acepodcast at silveradventures.com.au. That's S-I-L-V-R adventures. Remember, there's no E in there. Now let's get back to this week's guest. All right, Wes, thanks so much for joining us on the program. Happy to be here. And it looks like you got set up quite nicely over there in your log cabin in West Virginia. We're pretty jealous over here in Australia. (laughs) Yeah, we're lucky right now. We can still travel. It's just a few hours drive from Washington, D.C., where I normally am. So I'm actually overlooking a very picturesque West Virginia farm valley with silos and farm equipment and hay being, being baled. It's rather idyllic. Well, uh, maybe you can you can give our audience a bit of background about you and the work that you do. So I am a lifelong storyteller. I was a TV producer for many years with National Geographic, mm-hmm. uh, also a music journalist for Grammy, and then helped with textbooks with National Geographic again. And then my last role with the National Geographic Society was the director of live events and experiences. Mm-hmm. And one of my crowning glory still, I have to say, is creating the world's largest permanent virtual reality theater at National Geographic's headquarters in 2018. But since then, I've actually started a company and kept it going for over a year. And here we are 17 months later. Yeah, it's very interesting to hear, especially about the the VR work that you've done. That's That really ticks our box here at Silver Adventures for virtual reality. But uh, I think to segue... Maybe about your experience of a diagnosis and and life with Parkinson's, because I understand you were diagnosed maybe a few years ago. So the first time anyone brought up something that I would later realize was a Parkinson's symptom was when I was about 31, one of my friends noticed that when I walked, I didn't swing my right arm. Hmm. Didn't think of it. I had a puppy at the time, a little pit mix who took all of my strength to keep on the leash. And that was just the one I used. So I figured it had just become used to you know, being at my side while I walked my dog. And then I started to notice that I couldn't brush my teeth or really eat with my right hand. And I am right-handed. I also noticed that my writing was getting, just getting really hard to write. Like Mm. the dexterity had gone away. So I had been an athlete all my life, had wrestled, swam, cheerled. I assumed that maybe this was just an old athletic injury coming up to rear its head in your mid-30s as they tend to do. And uh, went to a hand surgeon and he recommended go see an OT and then recommended I have cubital tunnel surgery. But before he did that, he sent me to get a test, one last test and got some results back. They couldn't share quite with me yet. So I go to my occupational therapist who is an overly assertive Kiwi. So she got the report and in it were the words Parkinsonian-like symptoms. Mm. So that was the first time I got to see that in writing. Thankfully, my overly assertive Kiwi is also an asshole and refused to let me cry. <laughs> she just beat me up for another half an hour and massaged my joints because that's what I needed. So I found out the day before my 35th birthday that I had Parkinson's. And what happened in the next four months is a pure sign of either 
coping some, with something very well or most likely denying it full-heartedly. Mm. In the next four months, I completed a series of four high-profile events tied to the National Geographic's race issue of the magazine, which actually helped in so many ways get me ready for what was to come next. And then by October 18th, I launched the world's largest permanent virtual reality theater. Nice. A very busy and I'm sure emotionally draining and confusing time. Flashing forward to, to 2021, do you feel like having the diagnosis has, has helped in any way? Yes. It was my doctor and my good friend, Sean, whose father passed away with Parkinson's a couple of years ago, said it's just keep moving. That's all it is. Because once you stop, it doesn't come back. So I kept moving. I moved. I was applying for jobs outside of National Geographic, being flown across the country for last round reviews in April, along with producing those four events, not to mention the other 100 events that were going on as part of my job responsibility, two weeks in an Amazonian rainforest, and building the theater. I kind of wanted to ask, when you said that you keep moving and and you're trying to just keep going as as much as you can, do you feel like there's a drive to to go before things start becoming more serious or what's the feeling there? Because you, you described it like constant motion a little bit. Yes. The reason I move, keep moving and do so much is I don't know how much time I have and I'm not done yet, but I've always been someone when they grieve, they create energy has to go somewhere. And unless it goes into something that I can be proud of and creative with, I don't think I'm going to be happy with where else it goes. That's I mean that's a great response to to find it as energy. I know you mentioned that a lot of your work now feels like you're trying to focus on accessibility, and that that came out of the diagnosis and your journey through Parkinson's. That you want to create work that includes people with all sorts of different challenges in life. There's no point in creating science communication, no matter how good it is, if it can't be easily digested and understood by people. And I don't want people who have physical limitations or neurodiversity or even physical diversity being unable to access it. And with 360 video, it's a little easier because oftentimes those aren't reliant as much on hands and movement and controllers in that way. Mm. But I know for Parkinson's in particular and other movement disorders, there are a lot of things that make it not really usable for us. Just to jump in here, we're, we're talking about 360 and immersive. We're talking about virtual reality, right? Yes. Yeah. So what I was working on was 360 documentaries. Mm. So 360 video that is passive. You just you engage with it by viewing it and listening. You're not actually interacting with the controllers in any way, shape, or form, Yeah. except to play the videos. So focusing on those, they're pretty easy and pretty straightforward, but it's very hard to play six deaf games. Yeah. That's a really nice tie into the work we do at Silver Adventures where we're doing virtual reality for older adults who don't necessarily have a high level of cognitive functioning or physical mobility. And a lot of the work that we do is in the 360 video space, as you were saying, which you don't need to engage with controllers for. It's more of the the head movement and the immersive audio and, and video sorts of things. When you were doing Expedition Everest 360, was that the video project? So that was a 360 documentary, so the more passive interacting. And that was actually a piece I was the VR development producer for, along with a great team led by Martin Edstrom in Sweden. And that was an amazing experience. It was a four-part series. And what we were trying to do was showcase to the world 
what it was like to be 27,000 feet up on the side of Everest installing the world's highest weather station. Along with that, also showcased the biodiversity, the team, and some other unique sites because most people, when they think of the Himalayas, they think of just the tips of the mountains. They don't mm. think of all the biodiversity that's on as you get lower and the, the climate changes and how actually the climate is changing because of the climate crisis. So that was a really important thing to create mm. because 95% of the world will never be there. We'll never get there. And this has the opportunity to connect with them, feel that they have been there. And that was actually the most fun was playing that with a remote theater system in Aspen, Colorado during X Games. So we were on the main like festival way for all these winter sported enthusiasts. But in four days, we were able to take 5,500 people to Mount Everest with us. In four. Yeah. But ultimately, watching the reaction on people's faces and asking questions about Everest after seeing it was so rewarding and so exciting. Mm. People would forget they're in the middle of the X Games. Mm. They would all have their headsets on together playing at the same time through a shared synchronized immersive reality experience system and would forget and just be like, oh my God, mom, did you see this? And kids telling their mom to look left, mm -hmm. friends telling their friends to look right so they'd scream because they'd be right on the edge. <laughs> like it was so much fun to watch. They forgot that they weren't there with their friends for just a moment. You completely forgot where you were and had fun. So good. Yeah, such a cool idea to take people in such an immersive and exciting way. That that's what really excites me about virtual reality as well is that you can't really explain it until you've had the headset on, but you are there and it feels like. Yeah. So when you were making the world's largest permanent virtual reality theater, what was the content experience in that and, and what was the sort of scenario? So what happened was I was now leading a team that oversaw a 130-year-old institution, which was Nat Geo Live. So National Geographic has been telling stories live on stage before it had a magazine. Hmm. And the reason I brought in that legacy thing is not to like brag about Nat Geo or anything like that. It's that we had to take a 130 year institution and change it. And so that's what I was doing under my tenure as director of live events and experiences hmm. was changing it. And what we traditionally had were the dirty L words, lectures. Hmm. So trying to change up what we offered as programming the VR theater was a big part of that. Mm. But in order to do that, I had to make something my audience would understand, which was they were used to 60-minute lectures. Mm. So how do you make programming with VR that fits that? And through one of our grantees and explorers, Mike Lebecki, there was the perfect opportunity to try this. He had some VR and 360 that he had turned into a show called paddleboarding with polar bears. So VR was always best for taking you to places you couldn't go. So the great thing about hearing a National Geographic Explorer or anyone who's been to places like the Boiling River and the Amazon, you have to be there to really get it. Mm. And this is as close as we actually get to being there to really get it. So when you'd have a speaker talking about the leopard seal in Antarctica or getting nose to nose with them hmm. the moment that leopard seal starts to come nose to nose you put a headset on it, that leopard seal is nose to nose with your nose hmm. and there is no better way to get close but well, it sounds like you, you kind of found a way to to use the vr as 
as part of a program, not just the sole focus, but to augment the sort of presentations and engagement that you're offering in other areas as well. Yep. And part of that, I think, really came down to what is VR best for? Mm. It is taking you somewhere you can't go or to a scale or time you can't go. And I really think that those are some of the key things that VR is very good for. So if I can't, let's say, go to Bears Ears National Monument in the American West, you take people there Mm. because I'm never going to be able to go there. I'm not native. I'm not an elder. So these spaces are not meant for me. But they are important to me because they're part of American history. They're part of our global human history. So I want to know about them. Mm. And this is a way to transport an entire audience of 450 people to those sacred kivas in Bears Ears National Monument. So they felt how important they were. So they cared about them. So they wanted to protect them. One big lesson I've learned from Nat Geo, and I think VR is key for this, it is show, not tell. Yeah. And VR sums that up no better way. It is, oh, I'm going to show you. I'm going to take you there. Mm. There is nothing closer to teleportation than we have right now than VR. Yeah. I'm just thinking about the experiences that I've been in. You know, I'll make a, a 360 video and we'll use that with the headsets and I'll be editing on my computer and kind of putting the sound together and all that. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know this one. And then put the headset on like, oh, my goodness, I'm here. What the hell is this? Yeah. And yeah. I'll start getting memories of, of being in the place or, you know, wondering what's around the next corner. It's, yeah, it's something else. Hey, <laughs> We're almost at a time waste, but before we do, can you chat to us about uh, your company, Meridian Treehouse? Yeah, so Meridian Treehouse was born out of necessity and creativity. But what we focus on now is strategic storytelling and immersive design, innovation, experiences, a um, little bit of everything kind of a one stop for science communicating and various new techniques. So Mm -hmm. the first thing we ever did as a company partnered with two long-term collaborators and we created a virtual festival to celebrate all things for DC. It was a month and a half into the pandemic. We all missed our our neighbors, our favorite bars, our favorite nightclubs, our favorite performers and artists. So we put together this ambitious 18-hour straight Instagram live event, and it was a huge success. And everyone felt connected. We raised money. We had a Webby honor for it. Mm-hmm. So that's the things I want to do is how do you connect people and keep them not feeling isolated when we are physically distanced? How do you keep that connection? And so that's what I focus on is connecting educators with learners, connecting scientists with storytellers. and that's just the beginning. So there's so much more. I'm only a year and two months into the company. So hopefully there's just the beginning. Can people find out more? Is there a website that you can direct people to? (laughs) There is a website. It's meridiantreehouse.com. So there you can see some of the past work. You can see some of the press that we've gotten and see some of our collaborators, which is slowly expanding as we do more and more projects. So really some of my favorite people I get to create magic with, which is kind of amazing. Awesome. Well, Wes, thank you so much for sharing all your work and all your stories. Thank you. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Age Care Enrichment Podcast, brought to you by Silver Adventures. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. And if you're enjoying it, please leave us a review. We'd really appreciate it. If you're interested in finding out how immersive virtual reality experiences can enrich the lives of older adults, visit the Silver Adventures website today 
at www.silver.adventures.com.au. See you next week.